produced in association with KPMG Australia, this is What Happens Next with Whitney Fitzsimmons. Hello, I'm Whitney Fitzsimmons. Coming up on the program, we speak to three people working to change how business and society views disability. It would be useful for organisations to kind of look at themselves and look at their brand and look at their profile and whether they are seen as disability friendly and and open and inclusive to people with disability. I think in Australia we're probably three years behind in terms of embracing disability and more specifically embracing neurodiversity. You're confronted with questions about you and your disability and I'm very happy to answer those questions. It was my way of educating the public without true understanding, I don't think equality can happen. That's all coming up when we discover what happens next. Well, my first guest has more than 10 years' experience in advising governments and large not-for-profit organisations on human services sector reform, program review and evaluation, strategic and operational planning and operational improvement. The majority of his recent work has focused on the implementation of the National Disability Insurance Scheme, or NDIS, and the disability sector's response to and readiness for the NDIS. For more on this, I spoke to David Kay, Director in Health, Aging and Human Services Team at KPMG. David Kay, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. David, you're the chair of the Muscular Dystrophy Foundation in Australia, and you're also on the board of Accessible Arts. Um, Can you tell me a bit about those roles? Uh, Sure. So uh, I'm the chair of the Muscular Dystrophy Foundation. Um, It's a small not-for-profit. It's it's really the representative body for people with neuromuscular conditions, so various muscular dystrophies and other, other neuromuscular conditions. So there's about 20,000 people in Australia that are impacted or live with a, a neuromuscular condition. Generally, they affect strength and, and mobility and, and can cause quite significant disability, physical disability for some people. For other people like myself, uh, impairment disability is relatively uh, moderate. So it's a sort of broad range of people and, and we're kind of the, the national voice for that, mm-hmm. uh, for this population. And, and so we work with with government to to raise issues around access to services, uh, access to supports, um, access to healthcare. Um, And my role at Accessible Arts, Accessible Arts is is a very different organisation. So we're a New South Wales based um, Mm organisation and uh, it's primarily focused on the arts sector and artists with disabilities. So actors or filmmakers or performers we work with them to, to kind of develop their arts practice and, and bring their disability perspective to, to their arts practice. Um, so we, we do quite a lot of work in terms of mentoring and, and capacity building and um, you know, cool stuff at writers' festivals and film festivals and, and things like that. Sounds like it could be a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun. You also work in health, aging and human services uh, team in KPMG. How do the two roles or those roles intersect? Um, so, so my work at KPMG is focused on the disability sector, so the health, aging, human services team. 
primarily works with with government and and service providers across that spectrum, across public and private healthcare, aged care, and various human service sectors, including disability. Um, so my work is primarily focused on the, the disability sector. Um, so I, I guess how how do they intersect? I mean, I, I think I bring that professional experience and professional knowledge um, to my board roles. Um, and that's a really useful perspective to, to bring to, to government. So when we're advising governments, I can bring that, that not-for-profit experience. Um, and I, I think also I am a person with disability. I have lived experience of disability. And I think um, that that lived experience is, is beneficial for, for both my work uh, at KPMG, but also um, with the boards that I'm on. And as you say, you have a very interesting perspective because you've got the lived experience of someone with, you know, a disability, but you also advise people in that space. From your perspective, what are the positive developments that have been made to enable people with disability to work in the corporate space? Uh, I think the corporate sector is getting, uh, there's a greater level of awareness of disability and disability issues. I think there's there's been a focus on diversity and inclusion for a long time, and and that certainly is you know a major focus of of corporate organisations in Australia today. Um, I think disability you know disability is one of the often one of the pillars of of a corporate organisation's diversity and inclusion strategy, as as it is for for KPMG. Um, and I think maybe in, in more recent years, disability has been gaining a bit more traction uh, and there's a bit more focus on disability than perhaps there was. So so certainly um, increasing awareness. So you are seeing that attitudes yeah. are changing, David, do you think? Absolutely, absolutely, definitely. I think it's also reflecting changes in the broader community. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, we have an Australian of the Year, Dylan Alcott, uh, uh, proud man with disability. Do you think that that will actually make a difference, having him in that prominent position? Do you think that will flow through? Absolutely. I think there's already signs that that is happening. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, even the, the kind of profile that the Paralympics have, have had over re- recent years, there's much more engagement with with Paralympic sports, with, whether it be as a, um, a viewer, consumer, spectator, or, or even participant. So... Dylan uh, and people like Dylan do kind of raise raise awareness. Yeah, I, I'm just going to break in there. What I find so fascinating as a spectator, it's one thing to be an Olympian able-bodied, but to be a Paralympian, what, whatever your disability is, is quite extraordinary. I mean, they're superhuman, really. Yeah. It's very impressive. I think it's in some ways I, I find it more impressive than watching the able-bodied Olympics. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean that some of those athletes are amazing, and what they've achieved is is yeah is amazing as well. Um, I guess what, what they've benefited from, you know, they may have faced some barriers in participating in sport um, through whatever means have overcome those barriers, um, mm, mm. Um, which you know applying that to all people with disability, I guess, is is the aspiration. Is you know being aware of what those barriers are and removing those barriers. Mm. Well, that brings me to my next point. I mean, we've talked about what 
has changed positively, you know, and, and what sort of what developments have have um, come to the fore. But there can always be more that can be done. So in your view, where are the gaps? Um, I think there are still some myths and misconceptions about disability and especially mm-hmm. disability in the workplace. You know, people with certain types of disability um, not be as productive, take more leave, more sick leave, not be able to do a job as well as other people, then cost more because of the supports or adjustments they may need in the workplace. Um, they are myths and misconceptions. There's no evidence of those things in practice, but there's still a, there's still beliefs, I think, um, out there. So I think challenging some of those myths and misconceptions of, and beliefs is, is really important. Shining a light on disability and disability issues uh, telling stories is is a great way to to kind of raise visibility and raise awareness and and kind of challenge those those myths and misconceptions. Um, it would be useful for organisations to kind of look at themselves and look at their brand and look at their profile and whether they are seen as disability friendly and and open and inclusive to people with disability. Um, and, and look, we we know people with disability are are very underrepresented in the workforce, mm. generally, not just in corporate Australia, just, just generally. Um, it's an untapped labour market or an underutilised labour force. You know, there are labour shortages and, and challenges in lots of different industries. So why wouldn't an organisation try and tap into an underutilised pool of people who would be great employees? David Kay, thank you for joining the program. Thanks, Whitney. From its humble beginnings in Germany to becoming a global business across eight countries, Otacon is celebrating a decade in helping companies to employ people with neurodiverse backgrounds. I caught up recently with Otacon CEO Bodo Mann. Bodo Mann, welcome to the program. Thank you, Whitney. Thanks for having us. So first of all, tell me about Otacon. So Otacon is a social enterprise. Uh, we just celebrated our 10-year anniversary, in fact, last November already. Um, so it was formed uh, in Germany by a German entrepreneur at the time whose son was on the spectrum, and he was disenchanted with the career outlook and job prospects for people on the spectrum. And so he set up this social, social venture, and it certainly resonated well uh, with the German industry at the time. And the idea was really to provide meaningful employment and career opportunities for autistic people, uh, talent um, on the spectrum, with a passion for technology. And so we tend to work in four verticals, so software engineering, quality assurance testing, data analytics, and most recently, cybersecurity. And from Germany, then, we grew into eight other markets uh, around the world. So Australia is the latest uh, country where we started about three years ago. And uh, overall, we're about 300 consultants full-time employed, um, and we have 15 in Australia. 
How does Australia compare to the rest of the world when it comes to disability inclusion in the workplace? Yeah, no, it's a very good question. You do hear a German accent, but I've been here for 22 years. So um, I think I'm in a pretty good position to compare us here in Australia to the rest of the world. So I think in Australia, we're probably three years behind um, in terms of embracing disability, and more specifically embracing neurodiversity. Um, if you take the UK, Germany, France, uh, we're very active. Um, the acceptance is much higher, particularly in the corporate world. And versus here in Australia, a lot of the conversations I have with chairs, boards, or CEOs or CIOs is still very much around ooh, neurodiversity. This sounds more like a charity topic or an NDIS topic versus where we come from the complete opposite end. So we, we strongly believe it is actually a productivity, it's an innovation topic, it is some genuine value add. Um, now the pandemic did help us in terms of popping up on the radar screen because of the you know, diabolical you know, lack of, uh, of talent. And so the, the acceptance or the, the curiosity in terms of us seeing us as a, as a new source of talent uh, certainly helped us to have some of those conversations. But it's still, um, it's still a long way, I believe, in terms of uh, getting that full acceptance. So can you tell me why people with autism are particularly well suited to working in IT? Well, I mean, they, they, so it's a good question, but uh, they can work in all kinds of uh, roles. But for us, in terms of uh, focus, well, we're focusing on IT, some of the unique skills uh, lend itself. So the ability to concentrate over a long period of time, um, the ability to be brutally honest uh, and very transparent, um, and uh, the attention to detail is another, uh, another reason why um, a lot of our consultants are just very passionate and highly regarded in various IT roles. But in order to make this work, um, and I come back to our unique um, um, you know, operating model, we have our own job coaches um, on, on our payroll who provide not just coaching for the consultants, but also for the clients. Um, so without that support model, which I describe as mission critical, it would be a very difficult, maybe even impossible endeavor over a long period of time to add value to client organizations. And what are some of the misconceptions you regularly come up against in this role? So there, there's a lot of fear and, um, and probably driven out of the fact that uh, we really don't know what to expect. Um, the, what, what encourages me is that neurodiversity becomes a little bit more mainstream. And uh, I like to refer to one of the most recent Netflix show in terms of love on the spectrum. So that's very encouraging that the topic is more broadly you know, discussed, debated, and um, which helps in terms of taking away that stigma on the one side, but also the, the uncertainty or the anxiety around the whole topic. So the absence of knowing what it is um, and uh, the fear how to approach uh, someone on the spectrum is certainly a, a, a roadblock or a barrier. And part of our job is basically to make sure that there's sufficient awareness in, in, different, in the corporate environment to make it uh, easier in terms of dealing, uh, understanding on the one side uh, the unique skills and talent which comes with it, but also taking away the concerns. Um, 
And we see that all the time. So when we start an assignment, we tend to have a series of training uh, modules, and the uh, which obviously helps uh, clients to to build that awareness. And the reaction is just phenomenal. It's saying, "Oh, we had no idea. This is unique. This is absolutely amazing." And so while then our our team works with the client team over a longer period of time. Um, it, it's just pretty pretty amazing in terms of the the changes we see in the client environment because really our fundamental value proposition is around uh, driving innovation as well as productivity. And if you look at the holy grail of corporate success, I mean innovation will certainly be part, is part of that. And the ability to think differently, having a different ways of approaching a problem, by, by definition, autistic talent does they do that inherently. So um, having someone in the team who looks at the problem in a very different way than what we would do in terms of a neurotypical approach is, is something very helpful and unique. Australia has one of the lowest employment rates for people with disability in the OECD. Why do you think that is? That's right. It's a pretty, pretty... Um, uh, a pretty scary uh, statistic. So there's about 34% uh, of uh, people who are on the spectrum in terms of uh, facing unemployment. And if you look at the underemployment rate, it is even uh, more scary. It's uh, nearly 90%. So you have highly skilled, highly intelligent individuals who, because of the lack of uh, social integration and some of the uh, underdeveloped social skills cannot find an appropriate job and so are, 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 are forced to take on anything they can get. So we, we see that with all of our consultants who suddenly have the opportunity to work as part of a like-minded group um, of individuals. I describe ourselves as a family who have a regular income, who have a satisfying role and a lot of the additional conditions in terms of anxiety, depression, which very often go along, while they might not be, uh, might, might not disappear um, to, to, to fully, but they certainly diminish to a large extent. You say that this is the year for corporate Australia. What do you mean by that? Um, uh, not, not for corporate Australia. I think I said this is the year for neurodiversity uh, in in Australia. Australia came a long way and achieved a lot when it comes to diversity and inclusion in some other areas, whether this is gender diversity, whether it's LGBTIQ, um, Indigenous uh, is a big move at the moment. So it feels like corporate Australia is picking up on their other forms of uh, diversity, disability, neurodiversity. So I feel like this is the year for us. Um, while we're certainly not suggesting uh, ignoring any of the other DNI topics. Um, and I mentioned it, it feels like it becomes more mainstream, the neurodiversity topic, which is wonderful. We're very excited about that. Bodo Man, thank you for joining the program. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Much appreciated. Well, my next guest, Peter Hook, speaks regularly about disability and employment. She's the host of her own podcast, I Can't Stand, a weekly show answering audience questions about what it's really like to live with a disability. I spoke to Peter Hook recently. Peter Hook, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So, Peter, what are the key issues for you when it comes to disability inclusion in the workplace? 
There are so many issues. How much time have we got? Look, I think that the main issue is the fact that many employers don't consider people with disabilities when they advertise for employment. Um, And that's a big issue. People don't even consider us as a demographic to be employed. And when they do, it's often in lower level and low skilled opportunities. So regardless of how many qualifications we all have, there seems Mm. to be a perception that we would be fine in administration or something of that nature. And it's really not realising the potential that many of us have. Mm. What was it like for you trying to find a job? So difficult. To give you a bit of background, I have a Bachelor of Business and Commerce Mm -hmm. degree. I also have a Master's degree in Tourism. And I was really, as many young people, so eager to make change. And I was continually faced with so many brick walls that it was to gain the right employment for me. Mm -hmm. As I said, the low expectations of even applying for a job, I found to be really difficult. I was always not sure of whether I should even put the fact I have a disability on my resume. Mm -hmm. I was actually advised by a HR consultant not to. And for me, as somebody in a wheelchair who has cerebral palsy, and you can probably hear the cerebral palsy in my voice, You know, it's not something that I want to hide. Yeah. But it's also not something I can hide. Yeah. So I found it really difficult of saying, well, yes, they might read my resume and think, oh, she's great. I'll then get to the interview. They'll be shocked and I won't get the job anyway. So it's a really hard balance of how to effectively communicate as a potential employee, but also Mm. have an environment that fosters that inclusion and the want to have people with disabilities in the workplace. It must have been incredibly frustrating for you. How, How did you work through that or work around that? To be honest, the first job that I was given, I took because it got to the point where I thought for my own mental health, I can't keep, you know, for lack of a better Mm. word, banging my head against a brick wall, thinking I'm never going to get to where I thought I would be. University was a waste of time. So I, I took the job and I was very thankful to have a job, regardless of the fact that it wasn't really in an industry that I, I was planning on being in. It was a low-level skill job and also it was going into the trope of people with disabilities can only be employed in disability services and disability products. So I was really trying to go into a corporate mainstream and unfortunately mm-hmm. I ended up in disability services. And, and I guess that goes to the sorts of stereotypes that people with disability um, encounter in the workforce. Is that, would you, what's your view on that? I mean, yes, absolutely. And I think it goes to the fact that many people 
you know, in in culture, people in culture maybe have never interacted with somebody with a disability. So their perception of disability has been informed by the media and culture. And unfortunately, there's very little representation of people with disabilities in both those areas. And when they when they are represented, it tends to be very negative. So mm-hmm. I really do think that and, and that's assuming that when you go into an interview, you can actually physically get into the building. There are mm-hmm. so many mm-hmm. elements that people don't realise that make it near impossible for people with disabilities to get employed, let alone to get employed that allows them to feel valued and allows them to feel like there's a career progression that's what they want as a person. And you're, you're now self-employed as a consequence of your experiences trying to find work. How common is it for people with a disability to, to, you know, kind of, I guess, give up on joining an employer and instead go it alone and do their own thing? Recent research have said that it, you're 40% more likely to be self-employed if you have a disability. And I think mm. that statistic really speaks to the sort of difficulties that many people with disabilities find, regardless of whether you have, you know, a physical disability like myself who needs a wheelchair, whether you're vision impaired or hearing impaired or have an intellectual disability, it's so difficult And people really struggle to see our value. So that's why I went out and created my own business because I thought they're never going to see me really for me and see my potential more than just a person with a disability to tick that tokenistic box. So I decided to create my own business and I'm now starting to feel like people truly are starting to see me for me. And, and you you actually have your own podcast. You're a disability activist as well. Tell me a bit about that. So it's called the I Can't Stand Podcast. And it came from, you only have to walk out the door as somebody with a disability and you're confronted with questions about you and your disability. And I'm very happy to answer those questions. But I know a lot of people with disabilities aren't. So it was my way of educating the public. Mm-hmm. I answer a question a week. It's any question. I'm completely open and honest. And without true understanding, I don't think equality can happen. So I'm really trying to illustrate that people with disabilities are just people who use maybe a different mobility aid or look a bit different to you, but we're actually more the same than we're not. What's been the reception to your messages and and to your your podcast? I mean, it's been fantastic. As I said, it's been the first time that I've felt like people are truly starting to understand me as an individual. And I feel really great that I'm trying, in my own small way, making an impact for more disability representation. Peter, diversity is a key pillar for many companies and businesses now, uh, but often the focus is on gender and cultural diversity. Disability is often kind of 
not really part well it's it's almost sidelined to the, to the conversation it's it's in the conversation but it's not the main focus of the conversation what what's your view of that i agree with you i think often people with disabilities are forgotten when we talk about diversity and inclusion i think that's because basically people don't think that people with disabilities can create value and have the ability to be employed past those low-level jobs. You know, many of us are very intelligent and, frankly, organisations are just losing that different perspective that people with disabilities can bring and lose that overall impact that has been found to have on an overall organisational culture when you employ somebody with a disability. And the first step really is for many companies to make their businesses accessible, like you've said, you know, previously in the conversation. What should leadership teams and human resources really be focusing on, in your view? First and foremost, I don't expect organisations to understand what people with disabilities need. So I would highly encourage them to go out and look for a disability consultant somebody with lived experience that can really assist them in better understanding what people with disabilities need and how to gain that better impact and opportunity to make sure that they are getting the best people for the job. That includes people with disabilities. So in your view, what does real action look like as opposed to box ticking? Real action looks like... Making sure that from the very get-go of creating a position, making sure that you're not excluding people with disabilities. Is the job ad accessible? Can it be read by a screen reader for somebody who is vision impaired? That means using Microsoft Word instead of PDF or both. You know, making sure that you're not excluding people from the very beginning because I can tell you I'm a lot more comfortable in applying for a job when it says that they're open to people with Mm. disabilities and they illustrate that they have some form of understanding and actually are willing to listen to people with disabilities and understand the benefit that it can bring to have people with disabilities in their organisation. Because unlike... Other diversity demographics, anybody can be disabled. It can happen to anyone. And I would almost say you're lucky if you become disabled because it often means that you've lived long enough to become disabled. So everyone, if they're lucky, is going to become disabled. So it's not a demographic that anybody should ignore you're just purely missing out on a great pool of expertise that's not currently being realised. The pandemic has seen many workplaces formalise hybrid arrangements for flexible working. Is flexible working a positive step forward for people with a disability, do you think? I won't say that the pandemic has been a positive experience for Mm. anyone, but if there has been a positive to come out of this. It has been the fact that, like today, we are all talking from a remote perspective. Mm -hmm. I'm talking to you through my computer and it has allowed me 
to be able to engage with you that otherwise I might not have had the opportunity to do. My commute was literally 30 seconds this morning and I think you can never (laughs) undervalue the sort of accessibility and equality that remote working can bring. I I think everyone loves a short commute, Peter. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Um, I'm curious to know your view on this. Um, What impact do you think that Dylan Olcott being named Australian of the Year will have. Do you think that, do you think it will have an impact? I think it will. Absolutely. Just purely in the fact that, well, Dylan is a fantastic spokesperson that should be said, you know, firstly, he is great at articulating the disability experience. And I think it's really important to have that sort of representation and have a disabled person sort of held up as a pinnacle or somebody to be admired in the community because I would even say 10 years ago that would never have been a thing. Mm. You know, there, there is a constant stereotype that if you have a disability, your life is over before it even begun. Mm. Your life is a complete tragedy and people like Dylan are really illustrating that that couldn't be further from the case. If anything, it makes you look silly. Mm. It makes you look silly if you think that, yeah. Exactly. I mean, the man's done the Golden Grand Slam, he's now Australian (laughs) of the Year, and he's really bringing disabled issues to the forefront because people with disabilities are othered. We are that thing in the corner that often people don't want to engage with or understand, and he's really bringing a face to the experience of disability and really illustrating the disabled issues that are facing disabled Australians today. Peter Hook, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining the program. Thank you for having me. All right, well, that's all for the show. I hope you enjoyed this edition of the program. Until next time, thank you for listening to What Happens Next. been listening to What Happens Next with Whitney Fitzsimmons. Produced in association with KPMG Australia. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. 